Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's Economics Podcast. Every week we take two data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's Deputy Editor with you in Berlin. As always, Adam Twos, FP's Economics Columnist, Columbia University Professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So... As always, two data points. The second one today will be about air conditioning. Maybe some of you are using air conditioning while you're listening to this. Maybe at home, in your car, wherever you are. I do not have the luxury. My apartment does not have air conditioning here in Germany. And today, a particularly warm day, I wish it did. But uh, stay tuned to hear about the economics surrounding air conditioning. But first... Something more from the news, and the data point here is 97. That is the share of the value of the cryptocurrency-backed stablecoin TerraUSD that was completely wiped out in just a 24-hour period earlier this month. It's one of the worst scandals in the history of the crypto industry. We're talking $55 billion of paper wealth wiped out. It was the most precipitous cryptocurrency collapse we've seen so far. But it's not the only part of the crypto market that's been in decline. It seems most cryptocurrencies have been falling. Crypto obviously right now getting crushed. Investors getting jolted by volatility rippling through the crypto world. A massive sell-off of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, the original cryptocurrency, peaked last November. You know, since then, it's declined by more than 50 percent, plunging to its lowest level in 16 months. But it's not just the market turbulence that's been in the news. A lot's happened since we last talked about crypto, but most of it falls under the heading of governments trying to figure out what kind of relationship they want to have with these kinds of currencies. China and Russia have recently joined a list of other countries that have issued bans aimed at keeping cryptocurrencies out of their financial systems. We've also had a big executive order from the Biden administration, together with statements from central banks in Europe and Britain. Altogether, those countries are treating the size of the market as a, as a threat to financial stability, and they're looking for ways of, of taming the industry. So, so Adam, I, I figured we could maybe first talk about crypto as a speculative commodity, which we've talked about before. But and also as this kind of libertarian utopian currency project, which we've we've also talked about before. I mean, all of a sudden now we have these governments interested in regulating uh, and and maybe even trying to regulate away these functions. I mean, what power do governments have to do that? Can they regulate away uh, uh, cryptocurrency as a, as a speculative asset? And and I guess maybe more generally, what 
in what ways have these cryptocurrencies always been under the kind of purview of government authority? I mean, was this libertarian fantasy of being outside of government control always just a big, a big illusion? I think it's tempting to say it was a bluff. They proclaimed themselves revolutionaries and were sort of begging to be regulated out of existence. I mean, if they were serious about their project, why would a government allow them to persist? One's tempted to ask. Hmm. And I think the Chinese and Russian examples demonstrate that sufficiently authoritative regimes with a true grip on their societies in the wider sense of the word can simply ban their use. They'll make it very dangerous to use crypto either really as a store of value or a means of payment. You can also ban their mining, which is what the Chinese have effectively done, or you could make it prohibitively expensive. The European Parliament discussed a motion to ban what would have effectively banned Bitcoin mining in the EU. De facto, it's too expensive. The electricity costs are too high in Europe anyway, but you could do that. You can also limit crypto's use for loans. So, you know, in a financial system, it's all very well to talk about currency, but what we really care about to a considerable extent is credit. And as soon as you start issuing loans, you effectively create claims, and those claims could be said to be securities. And so one of the issues that's being debated in the US right now is whether crypto assets, digital assets, are securities, because if they are, they fall under the regulatory umbrella of the SEC and Gary Gensler in particular, who's proving to be rather a hard man on this issue. You can also tax them. This is a, another issue that has to be resolved. Exactly how are capital gains in crypto to be taxed? Do they fall within the system? Um, there are some you know, states in the United States which want to go the other way and, and, and enable taxes to be paid in crypto. Um, but one could also impose taxes on the business. And you can require exchanges in crypto because the tokens by themselves are not you know, valueless, really, if they can't be bought and sold. You, you can impose a whole variety of different, more or less onerous requirements of transparency, robustness, stability on the exchanges where, where dealing takes place. So, Adam, it seems that when it comes to the legitimate function of cryptocurrencies that governments are interested in preserving and, and maybe even cultivating, the focus is on stable coins as a digital currency. So I, I thought we could try to walk through what, what that means, stable coins. I mean, so first, what are stable coins and, and what kind of things can digital currencies of, of this kind do that you know, quote unquote, normal currencies can't. I mean, why does this count as an innovation worth cultivating at all? So I think uh, this is a really kind of puzzling area. So it's worth distinguishing three different things. So digital currencies are really just means of payment that are digital. There could be central bank digital currency, which is something that's in the works. We obviously already use various types of digital money for making payments with credit cards, for instance. And then there's Bitcoin, which is a particular type of digital currency or would-be currency that derives its value from the fact that it's scarce, that it's based on algorithms derived from cryptographic sources and a blockchain which registers its movements. And the idea of creating a currency that's valuable because scarce due to increasing difficulty of solving cryptographic problems is intriguing but kind of horrifying from an economic point of view because it makes the currency scarcer and scarcer and ultimately produce downward pressure on prices and deflation. So it's a terrifying vision. The blockchain technology that underlies it may seem a little cumbersome, but it's potentially interesting, I think, as a database technology that's still really in search of a very useful application. And then finally, at the end of this list of distinctions, the stablecoin, which are forms of blockchain structured digital currency 
which are further secured not by algorithms and artificial scarcity, but above all by being backed by the promise to exchange them for other things which have value currently. So there are some stable coins that are backed by the promise to exchange them for crypto, but the most popular stable coin, um, Tether, is anchored by a promise to exchange it for fiat currency, in other words, for dollars. And it's developed by a crypto exchange, Bitfinex, and the native tokens of that system are Tether tokens, and they exchange essentially for dollars. Surprise, surprise, that tends to make them stable because the dollar is relatively stable and thus also more useful than Bitcoin, for instance. And so precisely to the degree that they converge back with the rest of the financial system, they also begun to be useful like the rest of the financial system. Um, the worry here is that these could be a source of, of instability. And that's really why central banks and regulators have begun to focus very hard on this space, because precisely the bit that's most attractive, in a sense, from an economic point of view, the stablecoin, has stability concerns. And so I guess looking at this most recent crash that I was just talking about at the top. I mean, what triggered this in the first place? Was it just arbitrary? I mean, was uh, anyone profiting from the crash itself? And, and what sort of damage did it, did it impose overall? Well, in the wake of the collapse of the Terra and Luna coin system, a lot of um, gossip on the, in the sort of crypto community about the possible role of both BlackRock and Citadel, um, major financial players in the collapse. There's a bunch of really speculative rumours about their role in potentially shorting Bitcoin and thereby... I mean, the aim of the game apparently was to reduce the value of Bitcoin. I, th I think it's entirely speculative. I think there's any, it's baseless and it's been denied by both BlackRock and Citadel. If you say they don't, they don't trade in this space, they have nothing to do with it. And I think it's indicative of the sense of panic that struck certain segments of the crypto community. In fact, their anxiety, you might even say paranoia, goes so far as to admit that um, you know, the system was incredibly structurally weak. And, and then the argument goes, well, a weak system will always find a predator that takes advantage of it. So where's the predator? And then the finger points at established financial players like BlackRock and Citadel, well, rather than, I think, the more logical explanation, which is simply that the Terra Luna complex was essentially a stable coin without a, an anchoring mechanism. It was driven essentially by a Ponzi scheme, this so-called uh, anchor fund, which offered uh, people who were willing to put money into Terra huge amounts, of, well, a 20% rate of return per annum. So that sucked people into the system. And then Luna was supposed to provide a support, but Luna itself had no underpinnings. And so really, it was a matter of time before this thing collapsed. And when confidence began to ebb from the wider financial markets, it was quite unsurprising that this weak link should snap. And it is that wider, I think, context that matters here. And it also places the damage done in the Terra Luna complex in context, because that runs perhaps at an absolute maximum into the tens of billions of dollars that may have been lost. But what we're seeing right now in the wider stock market sell-off is a destruction of value that runs into the trillions of dollars, perhaps as much as $7 trillion have been lost in the decline of the value of shares in companies like Netflix, for instance, or, or Meta. Um, which are far, you know, gigantic uh, global uh, players. And, and the losses there have been gigantic. Across this entire system so far, we've not really seen the destabilizing fallout that we expected or what we perhaps feared. Um, and that has to do perhaps with the fact that the stablecoin system had not gotten large enough. So, so far, so good. But certainly a demonstration of the inherent instability of some of, especially the algorithmic stablecoin model. 
And so just so I understand, there was no conspiracy uh, necessary in this case to cause this crash. No, the flaws were so patent that, that, you know, it sort of begged the question of whether how on earth there could not have been a conspiracy to take it down. But I think the evidence is that there just simply was no such thing. And this is a, you know, convenient explanation being offered. It does raise the question for me, and obviously we're not offering any advice investment-wise one way or the other, but but uh, in principle, what you're describing, it could apply to other stable coins. I mean, any thoughts on that? Well, except that this particular one, um, the, the Terra Luna complex was astonishing in its construction because it, the basic idea was that if you added another cryptocurrency um, that would act as a stabilizing device for Terra, then Terra's value could be maintained at a stable rate. But it, of course, depended on people actually wanting to hold the other cryptocurrency, which was Luna. Um, so it was really a kind of perpetual motion type model. Somebody said that it's just like a bank run, except it's a bank run on nothing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a bank run on a bank with bricks and mortar and actual accounts. Um, but and of course, the crypto people will say, well, all currency is to an extent a collective illusion. The, the difference is that all other currency is actually useful for buying and selling things and for extending credit in it. And to that extent, it's meshed with very large scale economic activity. And the thing about things like Terra and Luna is they really aren't. And so to that extent, they are literally self-sustaining speculative bubbles. So if stable coins and digital currencies more generally are, are becoming an entrenched part of our financial system. I mean, how should we envision what a normal citizen's relationship to these will be? I mean, in some ways, what you're describing sounds like something very familiar. I mean, is, but is this ultimately on the order of like a credit card? <laughs> will will people be having uh, some kind of digital currency in their wallet, like a Visa and a MasterCard or... Is this kind of more on the order of financial plumbing, something that, you know, financial institutions are using sort of heavily maybe in the background, but most regular people won't be won't be aware of? I think we should probably demythologize digital currencies, right? They're not our future. They're already a reality all around us. If you travel anywhere in the world, if you want to pay for things, what do you do? Well, you can go to a cash till, an ATM, and with your chip-enabled card, you can type in a code and get cash out of the foreign bank uh, telling machine all digital, or you could skip, simply skip all of that and pay with a card. And again, that would be an entirely digital transaction. So digital currencies are already with us. Could they be more efficiently organized? Do we need an account with a credit card company, an account with a bank when all the banks in the US ultimately stabilize their balance sheets directly or indirectly with reserves with the, with the Fed, the central bank? Or could I simply have a digital account with the central bank? And could that account be linked to my social security number or my tax records? Sure. Uh, and would that mean that if you're outside the US, that you would have local control over payments ultimately in the hands of US networks providers? Yes, that would be the case. And that's essentially what the Russians are experiencing right now with sanctions being applied. So you could imagine a central bank digital currency, meaning the end of banking and credit cards altogether. Um, it could mean the end of private credit as such. You could also issue a European version that would be separate from the American system. It, it could be more sovereign. And all of these are possibilities. None of them are actualized. None of them have come to be put into place because there's profit at stake. There are huge vested interests in the status quo financial system that means that all of these various digital shortcuts to providing us all with fungible means of payment and sources of credit 
are currently in the hands of very powerful interests and 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 defending those is is what's at stake and in that space of course now the you know the young turks of crypto of uh, making the case for their particular model which has yet to prove its utility i think in any area but could one imagine the whole digital space being reconfigured absolutely yes china is in fact going i think quite a long way to doing precisely that it does seem like a race is on right now to see who who the leaders will be in this space. I mean, what does economic history tell us about the role that that government specifically play in, in deciding who comes out on top of this kind of race? I mean, finance presents itself, it seems to me, as the ultimate free market industry. But is industrial policy, you know, a factor in the financial sector? Can this financial industry be consciously cultivated in a given country? Absolutely. Finance and the state and their modern form have always grown up together all the way from the late medieval period in Europe onwards. City-states in Italy, the Hansa trading towns in the north of Europe, Amsterdam, London, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, ultimately New York, right? They're all centers of financial power, but also power in the sense of imperial power, political power, military power. London and Wall Street have long engaged in a kind of friendly rivalry for at least a century now. And that is a sort of industrial policy uh, uh, competition. Uh, the local authorities in both cases um, argue that concessions need to be made in one form or another to attract investors and, and to gain a competitive edge. What should be clear that the actors in that particular case are generally the same banks playing on two different playing fields. It's the American banks in London and European banks in the United States often making this case um, and when a government says we have to do this to be ahead in the competition, we should, generally speaking, suspect a lobbyist at work, which is why the Biden administration's executive order on digital assets uh, that was issued on the 9th of March is such a huge win for the crypto industry in the United States, because it may provide an open door to regulators. But the crucial thing the Biden administration said is that this is huge. It's a $3 trillion pool of digital assets by market cap. 16% of Americans have used them. And then listen to the language they go on to use. The United States must maintain technological leadership in this rapidly growing space, supporting innovation. And there is nothing the crypto industry wants to hear more than just that. Well, there is going to be competition around the world. The United States is at least um, are doing this from a position of relative strength. It's the home of the biggest crypto businesses. On the other hand, in Europe, you have a degree of freedom in a sense precisely because the crypto business is so small. The Chinese have simply stamped on crypto as far as possible because they have the resources of an authoritarian state. So in my particular worry is, in fact, the weak link may be the city of London, which has a long track record of competing in races to the bottom in terms of regulation, precisely in a sense because it operates from a relatively weak base. And right now, it is casting around for new visions of where it might go after the Brexit disaster for the city of London and the, the bust of the dream of hosting Chinese finance, which were two of the dreams that were dreamed in the 2010s in London. Crypto is now a big new thing in the Tory government there, and we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, that was admirably forthright from the Biden administration in terms of its, you know, goals. But but I would just hope that eventually that the sort of finance industry admits this synergy, this sort of dependence on government sort of goodwill and, and largesse as well. You know, there's always this rhetoric of takers and makers. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, it would be nice to sort of admit that assistance from the government. But I guess we will have to leave it there for now on this subject. But perhaps we'll return to cryptocurrencies at some point in the future. So uh, we'll take a break and uh, be right back. 
Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is 2 billion. That is the number of air conditioning units in operation around the world. Today, a typical US household is more likely to have an air conditioning unit than a dishwasher. In fact, air conditioners have come to play a vital role in protecting people's health and well-being in hot countries all over the planet. So, Adam, in the most basic sense, should we think of the invention of air conditioning as, as a luxury, you know, something that maybe is improved personal comfort for the people who use it? Or is it, you know, better thought of as a revolutionary technology, something that's really changed the global economy overall in some, in some fundamental way? Well, there's no doubt, I think, that for many users, perhaps particularly in North America, um, air conditioning is a daily luxury. You, you know, you might start using it as early as May uh, at the first sign of uncomfortable humidity. Uh, you might run the air conditioner in your car to make sure you don't have to wind down the windows and damage the precious interior. But that doesn't do justice to air conditioning's historic role, its, its world historic significance. Uh, and it doesn't do justice to the problem of heat. I mean, there is a there's a fundamental bias, I think, particularly in northern hemispheric um, or perhaps non-tropical observers of the air conditioning question, which is that we take cold more seriously than we do heat as a threat to human life. And it is true in the current moment, according to complicated studies recently published, one in the Lancet I'm thinking of, that um, of all the five million deaths globally attributed to non-optimal temperature, 4.5 million are attributable to ailments and diseases due to cold. 
and half a million are attributed annually to excessive heat. But nevertheless, half a million is a significant number. And as we know from, you know, if you live in extremely hot uh, and humid climates, it's not heat per se, but it's the combination of heat and humidity that's really the killer, quite literally the killer if the humidity is high enough, right? Because the humidity defeats our body's natural cooling mechanism, which is to perspire and thereby to allow evaporation to work. And so at very high levels of humidity under the so-called heat bulb, um, even relatively modest temperatures in the 20s centigrade can be lethal. And uh, at uh, more modest levels of humidity, uh, temperatures in the mid-30s can be lethal. I mean, lethal in the sense that if you engage in strenuous activity and need to perspire and can't, your body loses its ability to self-regulate and, and you die of heat stroke. And it's true historically that parts, particularly of the affluent hot tropical world, have acquired the economic, social, demographic significance they have only since air conditioning has arrived. So, you know, if you look at Florida, for instance, Florida's population in 1950 uh, was as a grand total for the entire state of 2.7 million people, because Florida for so much of the year is uninhabitable because of the extreme humidity there. Today, it's a state of 21 million inhabitants, so a near tenfold increase in the period since 1950. And the big leap is between 50 and 60, 1950 and 1960. Um, and that's due to the advent of the in-window um, air conditioning unit. It's also true that life in Washington, D.C. is well nigh intolerable without air conditioning. When Joe Biden was elected as a senator, he apparently asked a colleague, a senior colleague, what was the most significant innovation in his lifetime? And his answer was air conditioning. And then he, he went on to say, we put in air conditioning, we stayed, we stayed in Washington, D.C. in Congress all year round and we ruined America. Um, so the, the uh, air conditioning enables uh, life, but also political activity in, uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, so just to clarify, Adam, it sounds like you're saying that there is a point at which high temperatures really start to affect economic activity. Does it even affect productivity in a measurable way? Is there, you know, clear economic research on that? Well, this is a, a very long-standing trope. I mean, that arose ever since um, white people um, from the north encountered tropical climates, and it was uh, the, uh, the the sphere for a huge amount of colonialist and quite racialized discourse about how white people couldn't deal with it and the locals could. In fact, overwhelming evidence suggests that no human bodies are very well adjusted to high temperature. And so very large scale studies that have been done in Indian industry, for instance, across the subcontinent, across tens of thousands of Indian factories show that as temperatures rise above 27 degrees Celsius, which is 80 Fahrenheit, productivity declines measurably for every degree of increase. In fact, a 4% decrease in the productivity of workers in labour-intensive manufacturing per degree of increase above that level. So once you're in the 30s, you're talking about a population in the 90s Fahrenheit, you're talking about very subpar performance. We see the same from evidence uh, comparing public schools in the United States between um, counties where the public schools have air conditioning and the poorer counties, often black and majority counties in the United States, where the public schools don't have air conditioning and a powerful predictor of IQ scores and standardised test scores between the two places is just the presence or absence of air conditioning. So it does make a huge difference to our ability to, to function and to think and it appears to be completely indifferent to, you know, Insofar as one can ascribe any meaning to racial biology, it appears completely independent of people's uh, racial uh, characteristics. 
That sounds convenient that we can all point to the temperature if, if our productivity drops in the summer. We can tell our respective bosses that it's too hot out to be yep. to be to be productive. we think it already um, does so there's been studies of the u.s which show that the loss to the u.s economy currently of high heat waves is in the order of about a hundred billion dollars in fact they only think there are eight counties in the u.s which are all in alaska which don't suffer this effect at some part of the year practically everywhere in this country is affected by this and in texas which is hottest of all amongst the big economic players we think it's as much as 30 billion loss and that will rise, of course, as temperatures rise and climate change becomes more significant. So we could be talking about hundreds of billions of loss in coming decades. Yeah. Uh, is there evidence already of climate change producing greater demand for air conditioning? I mean, I guess there, there must be. Is, is there evidence of, you know, I guess air conditioning now being a booming industry or sort of on the cusp of a boom at least? Oh, it is. It's a huge global growth industry. But the more important point to make here, I think, is that so important is cooling that the main driver of the demand for air conditioning, given our existing climate in the world, is not climate change or heat spikes, but income growth. So as soon as people living in countries in the hot parts of the world reach, a lot of econometrics have been done on this, but as soon as they reach the $10,000 per year per capita threshold, they start buying air conditioning. Because after food and shelter and clothing, pretty shortly after that, and this comes as no surprise to anyone who's ever lived in a tropical environment, very shortly after that, the next thing you want is air conditioning. Because you can't sleep, you have no appetite, you sweat, you can't wear the clothes you own if you don't have air conditioning, right? So the, it's a very basic need. It's not a, so middle income countries are going to see this surge. And as more growth, economic growth happens, and India is definitely in this kind of category now, the Indian middle class are in waves as it were, uh, acquiring air conditioning and the sort of shocks that we're seeing in the current moment provide everyone with the excuse. You can follow it on Twitter with Indian middle class Indians celebrating the fact that they've gone out and bought themselves a unit because it's uh, it's been intolerable there in, in, uh, in the spring of 2022. I mean, I wonder, is there a negative feedback loop potentially at work here? I mean, where air conditioning is you know, producing further climate change, you know, by virtue of, of, of the power it uses or, or, or the exhaust it produces. I mean, you know, it's the very sort of high temperatures it's supposed to mitigate. Is it is it maybe contributing to them in some way? Yeah, the two things that matter here are the power consumption and the hydrofluorocarbons, which are in the, the refrigerants in the AC units. But it's above, above all the power consumption that's the issue. And it's huge. It's an absolutely huge issue. And we're seeing it in India right now with the surge in electricity demand for the installed units driving um, a surge in electricity production. And that in India right now means burning more coal. So it, it's a direct feed through the IEA, the International Energy Agency has modelled this. And um, it, it thinks that AC units and electric fans probably consumed 10% of global electricity in 2016. And that's six years ago. And so the number will be even higher now because this is a huge driver of electricity growth uh, around the world of the 2.8 billion people that live in really hot places where you'd want air conditioning. Currently, only 8% have it. So as those people pop across this crucial critical income threshold, they are all going to want air conditioning. It is a major, major challenge in a warming world um, to provide people with the cooling they need. And it needs to be I think foreign policy had a great article uh, a while back precisely on this issue. We need to remove the moral condemnation that implies that this is some sort of luxury, some sort of frippery that people could do without if they, if they, um, if only they just bucked up. Um, on the contrary, it's it's a it's, you know really quite an existential need faced with the kind of temperatures that many people have to live with.
Yeah, it is interesting that people sort of tend not to moralize as much about heating as they do air conditioning, although, you know, they, they, they are both functionally just as important. Um, and I guess that that relates to, I guess, my last question, which is, what is the latest on air conditioning technology? Are there any sort of disruptive improvements in air conditioning that have recently happened or, or that are underway? Or, I mean, are, we, are, are is this really just sort of marginal improvements in air conditioning over time that we've seen? I think there's a series of innovations happening, and it's an area of very serious research because heating and cooling buildings all together across the world probably cons- is accounts for about 15% of global CO2 emissions. So it's right up there with farting cows and driving cars and all of that, right? It's uh, Heating and cooling buildings is a big deal, and perfecting the technology to do it is really steps we need to take. Heat pumps are one solution, right, because they can heat and cool depending on the need with the same piece of equipment in a relatively efficient way. Another thing that we need to do is to um, separate out the functions of heating and cooling from the functions of ventilation and dehumidification. So one of the key reasons why Americans tend to turn on their air conditioners early in the year is the humidity starts already, say, on the East Coast in late April, May, and you use the air conditioner to dehumidify. And there are much more efficient ways of doing that if you separate the two functions, so heating and cooling on the one hand and circulation on the other. Another area of technology that people are looking at is not using forced air systems, but more concepts like radiators. You know, in much of old world Europe, you heat not by blowing hot air, but by having a hot object in a room. Now, you can achieve a cooling effect by having a cold object in a room. And the advantage of that is you can use water or other fluids as a conductor of heat, and that's much more efficient than using air as a conductor of heat or cool cooling. So that's also an option. You can use radiative cool objects, so like so basically ice packs for rooms as an option. And then as a very last ditch, and this is a last ditch, we can focus not on conditioning air, but on cooling people. Right. So there's obviously something rather inefficient about cooling giant spaces. If you think about the Astrodome or something like that in, you know, these huge sports stadia in the south of the United States where you're, you're cooling a vast space. Whereas what we, of course, want to do is to cool people. I mean, I have to say that if you've ever been in an extremely hot place, the idea of just cooling yourself is really last ditch stuff. I mean, when you're when you're doing that, you know. You're, you're under the, the, the heat dome and things are pretty bad. It's pretty bad news. The idea of not having a space that you can safely inhabit is, is terrifying. But that's where we also may be headed as a sort of last resort, low cost option for people, say, in the Middle East, who are going to be regularly facing temperatures of 50 centigrade plus 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, we will need, as it were, personal cooling options to just avoid the the worst disasters that may be heading our way. But what, what does that mean in practice? How 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 do, what are personal fans. cooling options? It's all about fans. It's all about fans. It's all about water. Okay. You just need to generate that um, evaporative effect, and it won't work if you're in a condition of really extreme um, mm. humidity, because then the evaporation can't take place. But as a last resort in a dry, hot place. Um, that's that's your basic last resort. You fan yourself, okay. find shade, fan yourself, and sprinkle water. Yeah, I guess we're still waiting for our Steve Jobs of uh, the personal fan. That's uh, someone who can sort of make that cool and desirable object to have. But okay, uh, we, I will start looking into some of these for for my summer. I think that actually the, those cooling those cool packs for the rooms are what 
people I've seen get here. So maybe maybe I'll look into that. But okay, we will we will leave it there for now. And yeah. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Production assistance from Zimone Perez. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life 
allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.